Morning, church. We are continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount. And I don't know about you, but I know for those of us who preach and us pastors, it's been challenging. It's been convicting because these are hard sayings. These are high standards, yet it is the Word of God. This morning, I've entitled our time together as Perfect Love. That is the title of the message this morning. My aim this morning is to challenge us to grow in our capacity to love those who we would not normally love. And we are going to do this by hopefully cultivating a deeper love for Christ. Today we're going to see that perfect love requires a capacity to love your enemy. You see, the classic command to love your neighbor is not strong enough. It is strong in its original intent and meaning. But the problem is that most of us would not consider our enemies as a neighbor. So when we hear the command, love your neighbor as yourself, we tend to define who we want to categorize as our neighbor. And Jesus raises the standard and says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor. I tell you, this includes your enemy. So if you have God's word, will you please take it and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to have a full sermon this morning, so for those of you who need to depart early, you can go ahead and uh, do that when you need to. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 48, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Point number one this morning is Jesus' standard of love. Jesus' standard of love. Jesus, in this passage, elevates, clarifies, renews the standard of love. He substitutes, like we said, neighbor for enemy. You are to love your enemy. And so we see that Jesus continues these hard sayings of you've heard it said, but I tell you this day. Now, before we, we get into explaining what it means to love your neighbor, I want to tackle a difficulty in the text. There is a difficulty where Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor, and you've heard it said, hate your enemy, but there's a problem with that, and the problem is nowhere in the Old Testament does God command us to hate our enemies. Where in the Old Testament does God call us, exhort us, or command us to hate anyone? And so you actually won't find in the Bible the saying of hate your enemy. So what Jesus is doing is he's taking a misinterpretation of Scripture that was common among the Jews of his day. What happened was that hating your enemy was, was commonly used as a saying among Jewish rabbis and interpretations of passages like Psalm chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Psalm chapter 9, 
verses 4 and 5, it says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. True statement. Evil may not dwell with you. Because God's holy. Evil is contrary to him. Evil cannot dwell in the presence of God. True statement. Verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. So God in his holiness, in his love, in his righteousness, in his perfection, hates evildoers. Another passage commonly misinterpreted and misapplied, Psalm 139, verses 21 to 22. It says, do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete, with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Now, these passages talk about God as the divine judge. They describe God as sinless and holy. He is the creator of all things. His hatred for sin is motivated by his love because he loves what is good and pure. And when he sees his creatures marred and destroying one another because of sin, he hates it. But here's the difference. God hates sin so much, and his hatred is motivated by love because he's perfectly righteous. He hates sin so much that he does what none of us would ever do. He does something about it. He himself, through the second person of the triune Godhead, hates sin so much and hates sinners. He can't stand sinners in the sense that he loves them and he hates to see sin destroy them, that he comes down himself to die for sinners. How many of us would do that? Therefore, it would be wrong for us to say, look, God hates sin. He will judge sinners. Therefore, we should hate sinners. Because we are not God and we are not Jesus and we are unwilling to lay ourselves down for even our enemy. And that's the point Jesus is making. He's correcting a misinterpretation of Scripture with the right intent by saying love your enemy because God hates sin so much that he's willing to make his enemy into his friends by dying for them. So my question to you is, who do you see as your enemy? Maybe you see a foreign religion as the enemy to Christians and Christianity because they persecute Christians. Do you see them as your enemy? Maybe you see the liberal political parties as an enemy to Christian values. Maybe you see another race or ethnicity as your historic enemy because they've either oppressed you or persecuted you and your, your line and your family. Or more personally, is there someone at work? Is there someone at school? Is it your neighbor? Your actual neighbor that antagonizes you? I mean, I think for most of us, when we think of enemy, we, we, we don't think of someone who's trying to kill us, Hopefully. Right? We think of people who antagonize us. We think of people who make life difficult for us. People who annoy us and irritate us. Who do we see as our, our enemy? And Jesus challenges us because he says, I want you to replace this idea of enemy with neighbor and neighbor as enemy. I want you to begin to see your enemy as your neighbor and the responsibility for God's children to love our enemies as one would love their neighbor. Now, this is a high standard. I can't even achieve it, beloved. I confess to you that, that there, are, there are nights in Wednesday night prayer meeting where I pull out the prayer guide, I read about persecuted Christians, and I pray like an Old Testament prophet. Rather than praying like a New Testament saint 
that says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, I begin to say, God, strike them down. Father, just destroy them. Destroy these evil regimes, this evil government that's burning your churches and persecuting your people. God, destroy them. That's how the prophets prayed. Now, they're praying truth. And so I think there are times where we call for imprecatory types of prayers, but that is not the spirit of Jesus. That is not the standard of Jesus. The standard of Jesus is so much higher than the Old Testament prophets. It is higher than any righteous prayer that we can ever pray. His prayer is for the salvation of enemies who persecuted him and who were reviling him. And that's why Christ becomes the new standard. You see, love your neighbor as yourself. I'll come back to this later in the text. But love your neighbor as yourself, yourself is the standard. But love your enemy, Christ is the standard. No one loves their enemy in here. We have to be honest, and that's what makes Jesus' teaching so hard. There's not one of us who would say, I love my enemy. Now, we can sit here and say, you know what? I'm not going to harm my enemy because I don't want to dishonor God, and that's good, that's righteous, that's noble, but it's not perfect love. We can sit here and say, you know, I will not take revenge because vengeance belongs to the Lord, and that is true, and that's good. But that's not Jesus. You you see how love your neighbor is good. It's good, but it's not perfect love. Perfect love is Jesus Christ who would lay his life down for his enemy to save his enemy. You know, we're not that far off from the Jews of Jesus' days because let me ask you, who would you consider your neighbor? Most of us, naturally, we would consider our neighbors as people who live around us or within our community. Maybe you consider your neighbor as someone in your own community of faith. Maybe you would consider your neighbor because it's telling that they live in your community. Maybe they're from the same socioeconomic standard. They may be from the social economic class as you. And you would even see in certain communities In Southern California, you have concentrations and pockets of one dominant ethnicity, correct? There are certain cities where you have more of one ethnicity than another. And so when you consider who you would consider your neighbor, it it is people who are like us, people who are like you. This is not very different from the Jews of Jesus' day. They considered your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, my neighbor is a fellow Jew, and for some of them, my neighbor is a fellow Jew in the same social class. They would consider their enemies as tax collectors, people who extorted people, and took advantage of people in the name of the Roman government. They would consider the Romans as their enemies, oppressors and occupiers of the Jewish nation. They would consider, they would consider Gentiles as unclean outsiders, enemies of God. They would consider half-breed Jews, Samaritans, as enemies and dogs. And so when, when they look at the command, they're not getting it. Love your neighbor as, as yourself. Yeah, I'm going to love everybody that loves me. I'm going to love everybody that's kind to me. I'm going to love everyone who's like me. And Jesus exposes this. You see, the teaching in Leviticus 19:18 is what Jesus makes reference to. In Leviticus 19, verse 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Even this command is easily misapplied because notice the words, sons 
of your own people. So I, as a, not me, but the Old, the Old Testament saints, the Jews of Jesus' day, could say, I am not permitted to bear a grudge against a fellow Jew, sons of my own people. But the Gentiles, I could hold the grudge against them. And so when it says you shall love your neighbor as yourself, well, I'm going to love everyone that's like myself. That's how they interpret it. And that's what Jesus does. He unfolds this. He unpacks this. Notice, back in our passage, Matthew chapter 5, the end of verse 44, it says, pray for those who persecute you, just like Jesus did. Pray for those who persecute you, rather than damn them through emotional judgment. Verse 45, so that you may be sons of your Father. In other words, we are to reflect the heart of our God who loves his enemies. That you, are, you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And what this tells us is that God's love, as seen in how he dispenses his rain and the sun, he provides sunlight and rain for the good and the evil, for the just and the unjust, for the pious and the wicked. You see, God's heart is to save all types of people, people from every tongue, tribe, nation, and false religion. He wants to save all types of people from all nations. And therefore, he does not discriminate. He wants to save unrighteous people. I mean, all of us, none of us would be righteous apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ. So he wants to save people like us. And so our hearts, as children of God, our hearts must reflect the heart of our Father who loves all people. And so instead of cursing our enemies, we ought to pray for their salvation. That's Jesus' point. And so when he says pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father, that reflects the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. If they are enemies of you, if they're antagonizing you, if they're wrongly persecuting you, Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. That's Jesus' standard. And then Jesus says, you guys love your neighbor the way that you love your neighbor. You want to be commended for it. There's no commendation there. Notice verses 46 to 47. Verses 46 to 47 of Matthew 5, it says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others. Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In other words, you think you're so righteous because you love your fellow man, but even the tax collectors who you deem as evil live by the same standard. The tax collectors love each other. They love their own friends and their own family. You look at the Gentiles and the Romans as evil people, but even the Gentiles and Romans love their brothers and, and care for those who love them. So there's no reward. There's no, condom, there's no commendation for how, how most of us love our neighbor. We love our neighbor because they've been neighborly towards us. You could live next door to someone and you might say, you might not treat them as your neighbor because they're not acting like a neighbor. You know, their dog comes over and defecates on your lawn and you got a problem, right? So now you want to eliminate their animal. I mean, again, there's a little bit of Old Testament. You're not going to offer up their animal as a living sacrifice to God. Instead, you, you must consider your neighbor, even if they're antagonizing you as a friend. How do you love them? How do you pray for them? How do you reconcile? How do you be a peacemaker? Jesus' standard is so 
hard. It is so high. It's convicting for me. And this leads us to point number two this morning. Point number two is Jesus' standard of holiness. Jesus' standard of holiness is what we see in verse 48. And that's why this teaching is so hard to apply. Notice verse 48. It says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In verse 48, Jesus is taking a classic command from Leviticus 19 verse 2 and Leviticus 20 verse 26 and it's mentioned in other places in scripture where it says, be holy because God is holy. I want you to notice that Jesus replaces this word holy with perfect. This is a completely different word both in the Hebrew equivalent as well as the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the LXX or the Septuagint. This is a completely different term. And Jesus has a purpose for using perfect rather than holy. Because the Jewish people of Jesus' day, they interpreted holiness as achievable by external action. If you can externally obey nobody sees what's in your heart. If you can externally demonstrate holy activity then you're holy, and in any area where you sin or you err, you could simply go through the temple system and be declared holy. And so they saw holy as just religious activity and outward behavior. But what Jesus does is he says, I want you to be perfect. Now the word perfect means complete, whole, undivided, non-duplicitous. There's no duplicity, there's no... There's no hypocrisy. He's attacking here. He's going straight for the heart of the religious leaders and many of us. He says, look, it doesn't matter what we see on the outside. God looks right into the inside and he wants perfection. Now this word perfect used in verse 48 must be put into context. Why does Matthew record it this way? And why does Jesus mention this at the end of this entire passage about loving your enemies? And this is where we get our title, Perfect Love. Because what does it mean to be perfect when you take it in context? What it means to be perfect as God is perfect means to have perfect love. And what is perfect love? Perfect love, and it's exemplified by one who loves his enemy. Perfect love has the capacity to love one's enemy as if they were your neighbor. That's Jesus' teaching. That's his principle. Perfect love has the capacity to love one's enemy as if they were your neighbor. You see, loving your enemy is the divine standard because it includes people that you and I would normally not see as neighbors. And so Jesus, again, perfectly is going to demonstrate this when he goes to the cross to die for us who were enemies of God. Furthermore, Luke helps us to interpret the meaning of perfect. So one, you have the context of Matthew, love your enemy, and then be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And then Luke, it's the very same passage, very same account, where Jesus is teaching about loving your enemies, and Luke records it, and he says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. And so when you have two accounts, what is the biblical author trying to teach you? They're trying to teach you that what Jesus meant by be perfect and what he meant by his standard of holiness is to love your enemy because to love your enemy is mercy. It's merciful. If you love your neighbor, that's not mercy. You're not showing mercy. 
They've earned your love. Or it's, it's natural to love someone who is neighborly towards you. But it is supernatural to love your enemy. It's a love that we can't comprehend. It is perfect love. Neighbor love is good love. It's good. It's commendable. It's noble. But perfect love, Jesus is perfect love. It's a love for one's enemy. Now, this is what I mentioned earlier. A little bit of application. Love your neighbor as yourself. The standard for loving your neighbor is yourself. It's, it's self-centered. It can be construed that way. But the standard of, for loving your enemy is Christ. You see, it's easy for us to say, hey, I will treat you like my neighbor if you treat me like my definition of a neighbor. And we all have a different standard of what it means to be loved. So I want to be loved in a certain way. I will only love you as my neighbor if you love me the way I want to be loved. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor the way you want to be loved. But this is completely different what Jesus does. He says, that's good. That's a good starting point. It's a good starting point. But the gospel is so much higher in standard and power and potency. Because Christ now is the standard for loving your enemy. And all other forms of love fall short of the love of Christ. You see what Jesus is doing. He's saying the law is good. You must uphold it. But even if you try to uphold it, it falls short of the divine standard for holiness. The only way to stand righteous before God, the only demonstration of righteous love comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus embodies the perfect example of loving his enemies. The big idea then from this passage is good love befriends a neighbor. It's good. But perfect love dies to save an enemy. We see this in the example of Christ. Good love befriends a neighbor. But perfect love, it's only perfect when it dies to save an enemy. That's what makes Jesus perfect. This is Jesus' point. Loving your neighbor is good, it's commendable. But we don't consider our enemies our neighbors, therefore we must look to the standard of Christ. If you allow me the grace to amplify this point through an example We see an example of loving your enemy in the story of David and Saul. Now, King Saul was jealous of David because Saul sinned, and God would take away the the kingdom from Saul, meaning his line of kings would not continue. God's kingdom would not continue through Saul, and God had anointed David. And so Saul knew this, and Saul was jealous of David. And Saul tried to kill David on multiple occasions. I counted at least seven. There must be more. Yet he never succeeded. David, on the other hand, had two golden opportunities to kill King Saul. Twice, David had the golden opportunity to eliminate his enemy his antagonizer, two chances to neutralize a threat on his life. But David refrained, showing grace and restraint. My question is why? If you had the perfect chance to eliminate your enemy, would you? The person who antagonizes you. I'm not talking about murder. I'm talking about some way, lawsuits, something, get get them fired. If you could eliminate the person who is antagonizing you, would you not? And if you were gracious and said, I'm going to forgive them once and they came after you again, and, and would you not say, okay, 
I let them go once. Now this is self-defense. Now I'm going to go eliminate them. I would. You would too. Be honest. Jesus didn't. That's just, that's just the standard. I want you to see David. I want you to see David's heart. 1 Samuel 24. Saul is pursuing David's life. Saul gets tired and he decides to rest in a cave. And here's the funny thing. Saul goes into the cave to rest. His men are outside. And David and his faithful warriors, his band of brothers, they're actually hiding in that cave. And so silly Saul, off guard, he goes and takes a nap. And so David's men tell David, David, look at Saul. God is so good. Your enemy is in your hands. You are the rightful king. This guy's trying to kill you. This is just self-defense, David. You have every right. Go kill him. Just go kill him. And if you don't want any blood on your hands, then order me, command me. I'll do it. I'll do it. Let's kill him. And then we can all go home. No more running from Saul. You be the king. We be your faithful warriors and your secret service. Let's do this. David has to restrain his men. He has to actually restrain his men. And what David does instead is he simply, and most of you know the story, he goes and he cuts off a corner of Saul's cloak, of his coat. And later Saul wakes up, Saul exits the cave, and David says from a distance, Saul, Saul, look, I could have killed you. I could have killed you. I wonder if he said, Saul, Saul, why? you persecute me what have I done to you but honor you as a father love your son Jonathan as my own brother what have I done to you I, I wish you no harm my kingdom I'm not trying to take your kingdom look I could have killed you but I spared you that's what David did Saul in remorse and shame says David, you're righteous. Okay, okay, I'm not going to do anything to harm you. They make some type of agreement. But Saul's not repented. He's driven by jealousy and evil. So two chapters later, there they are again. Saul going after the seed of Abraham, going after the seed of Eve, going after the anointed one, David, the one whom Christ would come out of. There's Saul chasing David once again. And now... 1 Samuel 26, God in his divine sovereignty puts Saul and his entire army into a deep sleep. It's hilarious. So Saul and his army are sleeping there. So funny how 1 Samuel 26 sets it up. They're, they're like in a circle surrounding Saul. Only all the soldiers are knocked out, inoculated, and Saul lays there. And how ironic, as Saul lays there, David and one of his fierce warriors named Abishai says, let's go down. So they go down, and right next to Saul's head, there's Saul's spear stuck into the ground. What a perfect opportunity. So Avishai, being this fierce warrior, said, come on, David. David, you've been gracious. You've been gracious. Look, last time you forgave him, last time you let him go, he's coming after you again. This is self-defense. This is righteous. You are the rightful king. You are the one that should be on that throne. It is time. God has knocked him out. Do it. And if you don't want to do it, David, then I'll do it. Let me pick up that spear. And David restrains him the way that Jesus restrained Peter from striking the, the religious soldiers, the, the leaders of the temple who would come and arrest Jesus. 
David restrains Abishai and says, no, just take the spear and take that jar of water. Take his canteen. Some time passes. Saul wakes up. David cries out from afar. They have another conversation. Once again, Saul, Saul, look, I could have killed you. Why do you persecute me? I could have killed you. Look, I got your spear. It was right next to your head. I could have drove it into your skull. And I got your canteen. Good water. Look, I could have killed you. But father, he talks to, you read it for yourself, he talks to Saul as his father. He says, father, what have I done unto you? Now my question is this. David loved Saul like a neighbor. At least he treated him that way. The text doesn't actually say those words, but the way he treated him, he loved his enemy as if your neighbor Now, David's not perfect. He is imperfect. We know that David was a man marred by sin. He committed adultery. He did commit murder, conspiracy to murder. He had Uriah's, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, uh, conspire to have him murdered. But why? Why did David refrain? Why did David spare the life of his enemy twice? I see three reasons from the text. Number one, David knew that God had anointed him king had anointed Saul king over Israel. We see this in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. And David was willing, I mean, I'm sorry, David knew that God had anointed him, David, as king over Israel. His day would come. This is in 1 Samuel 16, 13. But David was willing to wait on God's timing to make his kingship a reality. David in other words, was not eager to force his way onto the throne at the cost of killing his enemy. David, number two, David refused to harm Saul because repeatedly, 1 Samuel 24, verse 6, 1 Samuel 26, verse 9, 1 Samuel 26, verse 11, 1 Samuel 26, verse 23. Don't worry about writing them down if you want them. They're all in chapter 24 and 26. David mentioned several times, I will not put my hand on the Lord's anointed. I will not touch the Lord's anointed. Though he wants to kill me, I will not harm the Lord's anointed because at one point, Saul was anointed by God as king over Israel. And in ancient Israel, there was this belief that if someone was anointed by God, that that person was specially consecrated to God so that if you harm them, you're actually harming and attacking God himself. And David would instead allow the Lord to avenge him if necessary. He's saying, I will not murder. I will not murder. Instead, I will allow God to avenge me if God deems that it's necessary. You see in David, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. David never said I wanted to be king. It was God who raised up David. And so the only reason Saul is trying to kill David is because of God. It is because of God's sovereign plan and sovereignty. And so David submits to God's sovereign plan. And he says, I'm being persecuted on account of God's plan and righteousness. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for they so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. David would not retaliate an eye for an eye. Right? You see Matthew chapter 5 come alive in the Old Testament. And number three, number three, David was friends with Saul's son, 
Jonathan. And in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 15 to 17, David made a vow. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. David made an oath. He made a covenant to Jonathan that said, I would not harm anyone in your family. Jonathan, I will not harm anyone in your family because you've been a friend to me. Even though your father seeks to kill me, you've been a friend to me. I will not harm anyone in your family, including your father, Saul. David, let your yes be yes and your no be no. David fulfills in an imperfect way what Jesus is teaching. It's no wonder that even though David is imperfect, He's a man of God. He's a man who keeps God's word that Jesus takes the name, the greater son of David. And so David exemplifies a shadow of what it means to love your enemy like Christ would love his enemy in how he treated Saul. And we learn from David that only by loving God more than yourself can you truly fulfill what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the problem is that we have a struggle loving our neighbor as ourselves because we love ourselves more than God. But if we love God the way that David loved God more than ourselves, then we will truly love our neighbor as ourselves. Because even if our, if, our, if our enemy is our neighbor, we will love them as ourselves. Because David was living by the standard of God, not his own standard. Love your neighbor as yourself, impossible unless we learn to love God more than ourselves. Only if we elevate the standard of God above your own standard of love, and that's what Jesus is doing for us, will we even desire the Christ-like capacity to love our neighbor in a Christocentric manner. Jesus calls us to love our enemies as if he or she were our friend. See, we can love our enemies when we learn to submit to God's sovereign plan and timing for our lives. We can love our enemies when we submit to the divine, when we submit them rather than to judge them and be angry at them. We submit them through prayer to the divine courtroom, saying, God, you avenge me on your timing if you deem it's your will. I will not judge them. I will not return evil for evil. Now we got to go to Jesus. Like David, Jesus knew he was the rightful king of Israel. Didn't Jesus know that? What was the purpose of Matthew? Bible scholars speak to me. Matthew's purpose for writing was to present Jesus as the king of the Jews. Just like David, his forerunner, Jesus knew that he was the rightful king of Israel. Jesus knew that he was the Messiah and the world belonged to him. And the devil tried to say, take the throne the easy way. Take the throne the easy way. The devil tempted Jesus saying, you could escape the cross. Why don't you just escape the cross and take the throne the easy way? But Jesus submitted himself to the plan of God. He submitted himself to the timing of God. He submitted to his heavenly father. Jesus' standard was higher than any other worldly standard. Like David, Jesus did not force his way onto his throne, even though the throne already belonged to him because it was not God's plan. But here's where Jesus is greater and unlike David. Unlike David, Christ was not in a position of weakness. David was running from Saul. He was in a position of weakness. But Christ is all-powerful. He could have destroyed every sinner. He could have destroyed the Roman soldiers when they came to take him. He could have destroyed the religious leaders. He could have destroyed all of us as sinners, as his enemies. He could have destroyed us. 
He could have forced us to bow down the way that the kings of old do. He could have forced us to worship him. He could have forced it. But instead, our Messiah King went to the cross and won our hearts through the cross so that we who were once enemies of God bow at his feet, not by force or coercion, but by the divine grace of gratitude, thanking him because he's merciful. Be merciful as your father is merciful. Jesus was merciful. That's why we praise him. That's why we sing, yet not I, but through Christ in me. That's why we love Jesus. That's why we never stop growing in our love for Christ because the more we gaze upon him, we see All of scripture come alive and we see every good thing fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is a king who loved his enemies. We've mentioned this, praying for those who crucified him and mocked him, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Even Judas, Jesus knew the whole time it was Judas who would betray him. And Jesus, you read it, Jesus was kind to Judas. He was kind to Judas all the way until the end. You find a traitor in your organization, what do you do? You fire them, you eliminate them. That's not what Jesus did. He trusted God to bring judgment in his own timing and he treated Judas with kindness. Peter betrayed Christ. Peter turned his back on Christ multiple times, cursing Christ and Christ restores a repentant Peter who denied him. And now in the book of Acts, you have another Saul. Jesus is now in heaven. Jesus is now in glory. But you have another Saul, a New Testament Saul, pursuing the body of Christ, pursuing the bride of Christ. The Saul of the New Testament was looking to kill Jesus' church. And it is here that the greater son of David, in a complete position of glory and power, blinds the New Testament Saul and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? What have my people done to you? What have we done to you except offer a message of salvation and forgiveness through the gospel of Jesus Christ? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul, because of the mercy of God, becomes an apostle Paul. And I think it's fitting that only Paul could write this. The vilest enemy of the church in the New Testament, Saul, turned into the apostle Paul writes Romans 5.10, which echoes Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 today. Romans 5.10 says, For while we were enemies, while Saul was trying to ravage the church, Jesus met him. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Beloved, we were all enemies of Jesus Christ and his church. Yet Jesus saves us the way he saved Paul. And that is why Jesus is not just our king, he's the perfect king. He, his love is perfect. His love is flawless. His love is complete, it's whole, it's merciful. It's not neighbor love, it is divine love. Good love befriends a neighbor, but perfect love, Jesus Christ, dies to save an enemy. Beloved, will you pray with me? Father, we 
humble ourselves before your sacred word and we see the standard so high. Father, it's so difficult for us to love our neighbors at times. It's even seemingly impossible to love our enemy. But Father, you exemplify for us perfectly what it means to love our enemies as you went to the cross to pay for our sins. And you give us the capacity to love those who hate us. Yet we know that it is not through our willpower, it is not through our brute strength, it is not us, yet not I, but it's Christ through me. It is Christ through us. Will you fill us, Lord, with a deeper and greater love for you? Will you stretch our love for you so that our capacity to love our our neighbor expands and crosses the borders to love our enemy the way you loved us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.